Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this edition of the College Commons podcast, where we're going to be taking a deep dive into a new movie by Keith Thomas. Keith Thomas worked in clinical research at several Western teaching hospitals before embarking on a career as a novelist and screenwriter. He has published The Clarity in 2018 and Dahlia Black in 2019, both with Simon & Schuster and developed numerous book, film, and TV projects with creators like James Patterson. He lives in Denver, and The Vigil, the topic of our conversation today, is his feature debut. Keith Thomas, thank you for coming to the College Commons Podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. The Vigil is about a man who is providing an overnight watch to a deceased member of his former Orthodox Jewish community. In the course of that night, He finds himself opposite a malevolent entity as he watches over the body in the home of the body and his widow. In other interviews and uh, your writing about the vigil, you speak of trying to get at universal experiences, specifically the experience of the dark night of the soul, which is certainly evoked in this movie. Do you find that in addition to nighttime, being at someone else's house also triggers that experience? Yes, I do. Uh, It's interesting. In some ways, our homes we've built around us, we've assembled all these things that have meaning to us or that provide comfort. Um, And even though everyone's house presumably provides the same sort of thing, it's all the stuff we like, it's all the stuff we need and use that has memories or some sort of emotional attachment. When we're in someone else's house and amongst all their memories and their things, uh, there's a little bit, it's a little uncanny. So, So, yes, I, you know, it's definitely a sort of scenario where if you have to spend time in someone's house alone, particularly at night in an uncomfortable sort of situation that that amplifies the unease. Yeah, I'm thinking of childhood and your first sleepovers and also as a parent, my kids first sleepover. Um, Less universally speaking and more specifically Jewish is the movie's title, The Vigil. It comes from a mitzvah. Uh, a good deed, so to speak, even though mitzvah literally means commandment, a good deed that Jews are called upon to do, which is specifically to guard the body of the deceased until burial. In Hebrew, a person who keeps vigil is called a shomer, or as our Yiddish-speaking protagonist Yaakov calls it, a shomer. Have you ever been a shomer, keeping an overnight vigil? I have not personally though I have a, uh, a number of friends and family members who have. Um, for the film, you know, I relied on their experience to some extent, talking to them, though these, they were sitting the vigil, as it were, for uh, family members and friends, the people they knew, and they were, of course, in shifts and not there that long. Um, but for the film, I read interviews with and spoke to folks from the Hasidic community who had worked as paid shomers. Um, so I kind of got some insight into uh, how they did what they did and, you know, um, how it was supposed to go, obviously, in my film uh, 
our lead Yaakov is not the best Shomer in terms of what he's doing <laughs> right. at this house that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got other things going on. Or maybe he's just the right Shomer, as we'll learn in the movie. <laughs> That's true. I have to say, though, that uh, being a Shomer, I encourage <laughs> I encourage all of our listeners, if they have the opportunity, to um, undertake this mitzvah. It's deeply connecting. Um, in the background of our protagonist's story, uh, Yaakov has left the hyper-insular world of ultra-Orthodoxy, and it's very fresh. He still needs a support group, like Footsteps, to help manage secular life, and he's also not uh, well in his own skin. I'm sure you know that there's a burgeoning genre out there of autobiographies that describe this phenomenon of leaving ultra-Orthodox communities and moving through the poignancy of missing those communities and at the same time needing, for whatever reason, to flee them. And in fact, you supply the reason for Yako's departure as well. Do you call on these stories for inspiration or information? Yes, uh, quite in depth. In terms of when I was writing the screenplay, I relied a lot on interviews and documentaries and, you know, YouTube videos, talking to ex-Hasidic folks. And then once we, once I teamed up with my producers and we really started in on the production, um, he, I, he became much more kind of very personally involved in conversations with ex-Hasidic folks. And, uh, you know, for example, in the film, uh, in the opening minutes, we are at what is equivalent to a footsteps meeting, a meeting of folks who have left the community or in the process of leaving the community, and they're trying to adjust to the secular world. And in this sequence, outside of my, uh, our primary character, our actor, Dave Davis, everyone else at that table is either a part of footsteps or came through the program or is somehow involved in it. They're all ex-Hasidic. Um, and so a lot of their own stories are the stories, A, that they're telling at that table, but B, went on to influence a lot of the, the Yaakov character's backstory. You know, it, we really drilled down into the, the look and feel in terms of they became the consultants on the film, both for the Yiddish, but also for the production design in the house. You know, we, mm -hmm. everything, make it as authentic as possible. You mentioned in some of your uh, notes and other interviews that um, the Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox community were uh, in the wings uh, while you were filming on location, but also participated in various degrees in the production. And I'm wondering if there was any friction or hurt feeling or or even just acknowledgement of the fact that, that there's a, a tension there of telling a story and frankly validating the flight from the ultra-Orthodox community as you're working with people who are still ultra-Orthodox? I knew the story I wanted to tell, and it was much, it was a very personal story in terms of our main character and where he was going, where he had been. And I, you know, as we said earlier, I wanted it to have these sort of universal themes so you didn't have to be Jewish to understand kind of what, what he was going through. I didn't want to demonize the Hasidic community. I also didn't want to paint their pictures too rosy in terms of, uh, that lifestyle, yeah, yeah, romanticizing it. You know, it's tough walking that middle road of, you know, how do you tell the story from this perspective without going one way or the other? Um, in terms of the community interaction, they were very curious. Uh, obviously, when we were shooting in the house, which is the majority of the film, uh, they weren't present. But 
when we were on the street in Williamsburg or Borough Park, um, they came out, even if it was two or three in the morning. And uh, they, they really wanted to know what was going on. We, my producers, my LA-based producers are modern Orthodox Jews. Uh, obviously, Manasha Lustig, who's in the film, still lives in the Hasidic community. Um, another executive producer is a rabbi who comes from that community. So we had a lot of folks we could kind of send out in terms of put them on the end of the block and say, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're making this film. This is what it's about. There was a little friction, uh, at the start in terms of it was, it was less about why are you making this movie? They didn't actually care, you know, a Hasidic Mm. horror movie, whatever They, they could care less, but it was about why are you here? Why are you mm. filming on this block? Why, mm. you know? And so, you know, I think when we got to the point where we had had, we had several monitors up for crew to kind of you know, see what was going on and in terms of technical, technical stuff, we let them kind of have the monitors. And you, so you'd look over at a tent, it's very cold when you're filming and you'd see them kind of all huddled in there, all these men in the middle of the night. Once they watched what we were filming, I think the curiosity fade in there. Like, okay, we can go home. <laughs> <It's more>. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. And I want to I want to give you a shout out for achieving the balance that you described you wanted to achieve, which was neither romanticizing nor vilifying, but rather humanizing the the Hasidic experience to the degree that that was backstory. It wasn't central to the story. Um, I thought you did a good job of that. And I actively thought that while I was watching. So kudos to you for that. Mm, Thank you. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to move from the sociology and the religious culture behind uh, the people in the movie to the the monster, the horror story that the movie is uh, really about. And it turns out that you are a graduate of our institution, the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. And um, as a requirement for graduation, you wrote a thesis. And it turns out, as I learned in talking to you, that your thesis was about monsters in Torah. So there's no way we could get through this interview without asking you about monsters in Torah. Yes. Uh, you know, I, uh, growing up, horror was something I was always fascinated by. Um, fiction, originally, short fiction, and then novels, and then film. And I don't know, it just kind of sunk, I suppose it's apropos to say it sunk its claws into me and so it was just always there in the background and when it came time for my thesis (laughs) that kind of bubbled up and I thought hey if I could write about the Nephilim and Leviathan and uh, you know find a way into these kind of these stories and why they exist and explore those uh, that would be a lot of fun and of course part of that to a certain extent I, I you know I was very specific in the thesis in terms of which 
exact things I was looking at, but the Shadim, the, the demons were another piece of that. And so uh, a lot of that study and kind of preparation for that, uh, you know, germinated in a way to create the vigil and yeah, the entity at the center of this. I, I kind of relied a lot upon that research, even though it was years earlier uh, in terms of creating the sort of the, the, the track that I wanted to use to get to this thing. Yeah, the story um, unfolds in relation to this this ancient awareness of demons. It's it's engaging. It's really great. And uh, there's another layer, though. Um, it's not a spoiler to reveal the fact that the source of the demon that haunts Yaakov is from the Holocaust. Talk to us a little bit about what it meant for you and how you wanted to uh, develop a story that draws, on the one hand, on ancient demonology, as you just described, um, but also aims to get at the emotional crux of what the Holocaust means, which is such a modern story. Yeah, that was important. And from the very initial stages of the script, I I knew once I kind of had uh, created Yaakov, that trauma was going to be central to that and trauma and kind of guilt and uh, all the after effects and uh, PTSD and those sorts of things were very uh, personal and meaningful for me and something I really wanted to explore. And so, you know, I knew that it was going to involve this demonic entity, but in Judaism, we don't have this concept of the devil in hell sending out demons to take people's souls. Uh, so I, I needed to find a framework that would provide a sort of genesis for a demon, or at least a, a way that a demon could exist in the world, in this world, that made sense, you know, almost in a, from a theological perspective. And if you're going to talk about trauma, and you're going to talk about pain, and you're going to talk about Jewish communities, the Holocaust is, of course, central to it. But I also wanted to go back even further in terms of pogroms and stuff my own family had suffered. And so the, 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 the mazik, the demon in the film, became the embodiment of that. Now, that being said, uh, saying you're going to talk about the Holocaust, uh, writing that in the script, said, you know, we've got a scene set during the Holocaust is one thing, but actually making it is another. And, you know, when uh, meeting with my producers and discussing it, um, it was very challenging. In fact, that was the hardest part of the film to make. I definitely have found just in my own kind of viewing that attempts to encapsulate the Holocaust in a film are, are you're very, very tricky. It's very easy to cheapen it. It's very, very mm. easy to exploit it or lose. You know, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like a Martin Buber sort of concept of once you start analyzing it and you're not reacting emotionally, once you're thinking about it, mm. it loses the power, especially with this film. I, you know, I did not have the budget to fly to Europe and kind of set things in a certain way. So for me, it came down to uh, relying on a sort of vision for this that uh, harkened back to the film Son of Saul, which I thought did a very good job of showing a very personal perspective on the Holocaust in that the camera in that film is essentially set upon the shoulders of one individual. And we are experiencing what he experiences as he experiences it, this real time thing. So I went with that sort of 
idea. It also conceptually made sense in terms of the film. The trauma that Yaakov suffers takes about 20 seconds in his Mm -hmm. life. It's about 20 seconds, but it has haunted him forever. The ripple effects of it. And the same for our Holocaust sequence. It is very, very short. It is very elliptical. It is very vague in terms of necessarily what is happening. But I think the power of it and how that one moment in the midst of a sea of horror um, has resonated with this individual, with his family, to his neighborhood, to his community. Um, and I'm just, I was very interested in looking at how those ripple effects, you know, not only affect all these people who are in play in this film, but the community as a whole and the people as a whole. Yeah, no, I, you did bring it to a very fine narrative point. Um, now I want to speak uh, cinematographically. I, I don't know if that's a word, but we're, we're going to create new adverbs here. Uh, it, is it my imagination or did you draw on the cadences of superhero shots for the preparatory scene to the climax? The cadence and the steps of preparation, the visual idiom of mustering a superpower, even the music. Did, am I making this up or did you, did you find some inspiration? When I first wrote it, and essentially what is happening is Yaakov is putting on, quote unquote, spiritual armor, uh, you know, taking some stuff a little bit out of context, but but putting it into that context for himself. You know, I spoke to several rabbis and we, we discussed this scene at length in terms of like, how do we play this and what do we do in in a lot of movies and in the horror genre? There's this sort of uh, the, the point. It's always kind of towards the beginning of the third act where the hero will don whatever mm-hmm. armor it is and go forward. And, you know, for example, there's a film, The Evil Dead, where there's a sequence where there's a lot of these, these kind of insert shots uh, as he's preparing for battle with a chainsaw against these <laughs> demons in this house. And so I knew about, you know, I was, of course, very well aware of that shot. And it uses a lot of dolly effects in terms of the cameras gliding in. Um, and I purposely pulled back a bit <laughs> from going over the top on it. Um, but I wanted my cake and eat it too, in terms of <laughs> referencing that sort of thing and, and having it have that power. And there's obviously the swell of the music that's going on, but at the same time, keep it, uh, keep it kind of emotional and keep it tied to no pun intended, but tied to, you know, uh, the history and what's happening in the sequence. Uh, you know, the, the tefillin in that scene, in fact, is, uh, belong to the grandfather, one of the producers. So there's a lot of interesting layers going on uh, that are happening there. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun to shoot. It was, it was funny when we shot it, it was very emotional. Uh, A lot of folks, you know, were quite emotional with that sequence. Uh, And then they got even more emotional seeing it cut and with that score laid on top of it, which kind of has this heroic thing uh, that it's imbuing. Before you leave us, Tell us about your COVID experience as a creative person. Have you drawn on isolation to find inspiration? Have you found themes that you can tell you're taking notes on for future productions? Yeah, you know, for a lot of a lot of us involved in the film industry, when everything ground to a very sudden halt, uh, there was uh, definitely for myself and a lot of folks I know, there was this kind of desperate moment of, what happens next? Can we go back to how it was? Uh, you know, essentially our work uh, stopped 
uh, and it stopped for quite a while. And there are still, of course, many, many people in the industry who are struggling significantly as things are very slow to get up and running. Um, after the shock wore off and after this kind of, you know, trying to reassess uh, what we're doing and certainly for me, kind of like what future directions were, it really provided an opportunity to do a lot of work that I think uh, we don't normally get the opportunity to do. And that is really rewrite stuff in depth and uh, explore new opportunities and, uh, and open up maybe abandoned projects and start looking at those in depth. I, I've had, I've said this to folks in the industry when we've talked about this, but I'm very hopeful that we're going to kind of see a resurgence in really well-crafted, well-written things emerging mm -hmm. from the COVID crisis because everyone had the time to actually do that third draft, to actually go back and look at these things, you know, uh, and spend more time that they didn't before. I, I certainly had that experience. The first few months were incredibly difficult, but towards the end, I ended up uh, having many more very uh, productive conversations um, in terms of future projects. And it gave me the time, you know, the kind of little bubble to uh, put in extra work that we don't normally get. It's going to be interesting to see if there's kind of a, another uptick in kind of the contained horror movie genre because everyone was stuck in a house, right, uh, you know, right. we might see a lot of these stories, right. or at least if we don't see those stories, we'll see a lot of uh, maybe people reacting more to them saying, Oh, that's familiar. Well, Keith Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the comments podcast. It was really great to talk to you and for our listeners, the vigil is out and you can get it as video on demand now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.